Warning. This episode of Case Craze may include some or all of the following as it pertains to the cases discussed. Graphic depictions of violence, sexual assault, hate speech, abuse of a minor, domestic abuse, animal abuse, and strong language. Listener discretion is advised. Calling all true crime fans, this is Case Craze. Theodore Robert Bundy, you are charged, indictment, two counts, burglary, two counts, murder in the first degree. Tell me what's going on, okay? You believe it or you don't have to believe it. That's up to you, man. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Word for word. Money, I got all the money in the world. I'm a king, man. After a 14-month reign of terror, he was finally caught. Please note that all of this information is also available on my website, casecrazepodcast.com. All of the sources will be listed there as well, along with transcribed podcast episodes. October 1st, 1960. My first college entry. 19-year-old Betty Gail Brown would write down everything in her journal. Rick Berman came over to me at the dance tonight. We talked and joked like always, but I knew something was wrong. He wanted to have a serious talk. He told me that he thought too much of me and respected me too much to try to take advantage of me. He said that he laid awake last night, thinking, and he had to tell me, though he would not have told any other girl. I was speechless at his words. That is something. She was a sophomore at Transylvania College in Louisville, Kentucky, studying French. January 31st, 1961. We used a Ouija board, and it came out I was going to marry Dawn, be happy, and I will die young during fourth childbirth. (laughs) Big farce. She was in the sorority Phi Mu, was popular and studious. February 1st, 1961. Dawn and I talked a few minutes today. He went home this weekend. I felt mad all day because of Dawn, but I don't really like him. February 7th, 1961. I accidentally had lunch with Cal. February 24th, 1961. We kissed. He wants to marry me. And she attended Central Christian Church, where she taught Sunday school. Quincy Brown, Betty Gale's mother, would put a heating pad in her bed that chilly night. So when she got home from studying, she wouldn't be cold. She was a commuter student, so she saved money by living with her parents. A young woman's diary is meant for privacy. However, Betty Gale never came home that night, and her written words are all we have left of her lost voice. Her father, Hargis Brown, frantically called the police, stating his daughter hadn't made it home from the biology study group she was attending. He knew it ended at midnight. The house mother of Forer Hall noted that Betty Gale checked out and left. She got in her car, heading to Lackawanna Road, where her parents' house was. She never arrived and for some reason went back to campus and parked in front of the old Morrison Chapel. Why she parked here or returned to campus is unclear. Quincy Brown was a local decorator. She was also the half-sister of the actor Harry Dean Stanton, who you may recognize from Alien, The Green Mile, Cool Hand Luke, The Dad in Pretty in Pink, which is a personal favorite. She went looking for Betty Gale in the late hours of October 27th and made about three trips around until she was stopped by Lexington Police Department, unfortunately telling her her daughter had been found dead. October 25th, 1961. I think boys are a mess. 
Betty Gale was found in the driver's seat of her Simca, which was still parked in front of the old Morrison building. Officer Duckworth noted that the victim appeared to be dead. He immediately took the necessary measures to protect the scene and radioed for assistance. The police report is discussing Officer Don Duckworth, who was checking all campus locations after an all-units broadcast went out, stating that a transy woman was missing. An autopsy determined Brown had died as a result of strangulation with her own bra. The police files indicate she died around 1 a.m. and was found at around 3 a.m. Her light beige silk blouse was tucked in, her purse was untouched, her keys were thrown in the back seat, her car doors were locked, and none of her study supplies had been tampered with. Initially, there had been no signs that she was sexually assaulted. The coroner on the case, Chester Hager, said he arrived on the scene around 3.40 a.m., stating her bra was still tight around her neck. Her scalp had bald patches from the suspect grabbing her hair. She had a broken fingernail, yet no other defense wounds. And, an alarming detail, her head seemed to have been slammed against the dashboard so forcefully, she had the Simca logo imprinted on her forehead. Practically every detail of the crime scene, autopsy, evidence collected, and witness statements were released to the media fueling theories and speculation. The local newspaper even ran a photo of Betty Gale's deceased body in her car, hoping to incite a confession or information. So what exactly happened that night? Police had a crime scene with very little physical evidence due to it being the early 60s. They could not extract proper DNA sampling. There was one person who claimed to see Betty Gale that night, getting in her car. Charles Risden could have been one of the last people to see her alive. He passed her at Forer Hall after he dropped off his date. They chatted at their cars for a brief moment, according to the police report. Risden states he asked her how she was feeling. He did this because he has a dancing class with her and she didn't seem to be feeling her best. They went their respective ways. Betty Gale was noted to have been going down Upper Street around 12.05 a.m. What about the men she wrote about in her diary? There were mentions of a Rick, Cal, and Don. Nothing came of these men and none of them were charged with anything. In 2012, an online article said they tried to get a hold of Rick, seeing as they had the longest lasting relationship. Rick Berman is now a high powered figure in Washington, D.C. for Berman and Company. He declined to be interviewed. However, his spokeswoman did respond saying, he remembers Betty as a very nice girl, but that it was such a long time ago that he remembers very little more than that. On the police reports, a detective was questioned about the diary contents, and he was quoted saying, There is nothing in that diary that could possibly make one think any such thing could happen. The terror of this murder struck Lexington. It was almost like an unknown boogeyman was lurking in the shadows, attacking a defenseless woman right next to campus. Department Detective Rob Wilson was quoted saying, That case became the reason that my family started to lock our doors. There was a visitation for Betty Gale at the Kerr brothers' funeral home, where a classmate hysterically cried out, I know who did it, I know who did it. Apparently, the woman who screamed this didn't know who committed the crime, and just wanted to theorize. The night Betty Gale was murdered, she went to a diner with another woman, allegedly, where a waitress saw them both. Investigators questioned the waitress to see if they could get a better idea of this mystery woman Betty Gale was with. They took her to the Transy campus, Betty Gale's funeral, the visitation, and the burial, hoping she could point out this mystery woman. She couldn't find her anywhere. Although people also at the diner that night said Betty Gale was never there. This case does nothing but lead investigators to dead ends. 
Investigators interviewed every single male student and faculty at Transy, along with fingerprints and polygraph tests. Unfortunately, this resulted in no new information, making it seem like the person responsible for this was not a student. They had a very small lead to a potential suspect. An unnamed Transy alum was arrested for dressing like a woman. Now, do remember this is the early 60s where self-expression and anything remotely against the norm was frowned upon. More of this later as well. Their house was searched by police, where they found newspaper clippings of the case. Despite what looked suspicious, it turned out these didn't belong to them. They were sent to them. These small leads kept happening every so often, but turning out to be nothing incriminating. And then things remained silent for five long years. On January 20th, 1965, Klamath Falls, Oregon Police Department had arrested Arnold for public intoxication. Arnold told an officer in that city that he had murdered Brown. 33-year-old Alex Arnold Jr. is arrested in Oregon for public intoxication. This isn't his first interaction with police. He was known as the local drunk. He also had the alias of Don Eagle and Don Ringo. Lexington police officers traveled a whopping 2,300 miles to meet with him because he wrote them a lengthy letter describing the brutal murder of Betty Gale, which he committed. They asked him multiple times, are you willing to make a statement and tell us all that you know about the case? To which he responded, yeah, Sure. Um, that's why I had you come all the way out here. So they read him his rights and continued. He was drunk and wandering the campus looking for a place to sleep. He stopped at Gratz Park but saw a couple, so he rerouted. He laid down on a nearby grassy area and fell asleep. However, the cold temperatures woke him up about an hour later. He continued to look for shelter, somewhere, anywhere. This is when he stumbled on a blue Simca parked in front of the old Morrison Chapel. His story goes as follows. Upon passing a car in the driveway of the campus, I seen what looked like two women making love. They were like hugging and kissing each other. I asked them for a match. They began cussing me. I said, pardon me, and started on for this short and broad way. But being drunk, and then on the spur of the moment, I got mad and turned back to the car. Jerking the door open on the driver's side, I, I grabbed the girl on the driver's side as she was leaning away from me. Based on the police report, the other woman in the car was able to jump out and run. I knocked her head on the dashboard of the car. And she was either knocked out or she fainted jerking her back against the seat by her hair and her shoulder. Yeah, I realized she was out. I'm... This is when he allegedly got in the back seat and grabbed her bra. I hung it around her neck and strangled her by, by, by putting my hands uh, on each end of her brassiere and put my knee against the back of the seat you know, for leverage. I held it there for about a minute and a half. The only thing she did was uh, quiver a little bit. 
Realizing that she had passed, he admired her beauty and apparently kissed her breast. Because I thought if she was found that way with her blouse unbuttoned, they would think I had tried to rape her. Thinking for sure I'd be caught. While Arnold did hold some details only the police would know, his story doesn't match one key detail. He claims he placed her bra in the front seat. However, the police report states, and the coroner states, the bra was wrapped around her neck when she was found. He allegedly wiped his fingerprints from the dashboard, locked the car doors, and fled. Next, he went to his friend's apartment who lived nearby, May Hedges. We had a drink of whiskey. I told her I'd just killed a woman. Alex Arnold Jr. was arrested and charged with the murder of Betty Gale Brown. The trial started on February 5th, 1965. This, unfortunately, would not go as smoothly as everyone had hoped. Arnold's aunt said he was with her the whole night this murder took place. In May, the woman who he allegedly hung out with after claimed this never happened. Also, to add to the very homophobic times, Betty Gale's parents said there was no way she would be engaging sexually with another woman, or sexually, period. Quincy, Betty Gale's mother, even visited Arnold while he was awaiting trial to get a good look at him. She didn't even believe he did it, looking him straight in the eyes saying, you did not kill my daughter. Defense attorney Amos Ablin, who represented Alex Arnold Jr., claims he was too intoxicated to know what was happening. Defense attorney Amos Ablin, who represented Alex Arnold Jr., claims he was too intoxicated to know what was happening. In the trial, they asked how Arnold was reacting when confessing to this murder. Lieutenant A.M. Carter with the LPD testified stating they spoke with Arnold initially for an hour and a half. He was noticeably trembling. He seemed to be easy to perspire, very nervous. Apparently, they just wanted to talk, see what he had to say, make sure they didn't drive across the country for nothing. Once they heard a few things, they decided to meet with him again the next morning and take a statement. The next morning, he was visibly calmer. I asked him at that time if he felt any better after having disclosed his part in this thing, and he said that he felt like a 500-pound weight had been lifted off both shoulders. He advised that this thing has been bearing on his mind all these years, and that he wanted to get it out of inside of him. So how well did Arnold wipe the fingerprints from the car? Well, apparently well enough to have absolutely no trace of him left at the scene. Captain Brian Henry also testified, saying they were able to find three prints. Betty Gale's mother, her father, and the local mechanic who just worked on it recently. So, why not Betty's prints? The only thing linking Arnold to the crime was his own story. In court, he even said he wasn't sure if he did it. During Betsy's time in college, she actually wrote a paper on the death penalty and how she didn't believe in it. When a man commits a crime, he no longer has the right to liberty, but his right of life should never be taken away from him. The jury deliberated. However, after almost seven hours, they were hung on a seven to five vote. Arnold was released from prison. They wanted to retry him in February of 1966, but the Commonwealth attorney Donald P. Maloney states to the LPD chief E.C. Hale that he basically didn't want to waste anyone's time. 
I am very reluctant to cause the additional expense of the taxpayer's money, the consumption of the valuable time of the court, the jury, the witnesses, and your department for a second trial in this case in the absence of any more evidence than I had the last time, which the jury determined was insufficient to secure conviction. In 1973, Commonwealth Attorney Patrick H. Malloy was asked if there was any other evidence that could be tried. The chief of LPD, James L. Schaefer, responded that there wasn't, and it would be impossible to recall the list of witnesses from 1965. I find impossible a bad word to use here, but I'm just reading facts. Schaefer also believed that they tried everything they could. In 1988, Sergeant Fran Root asked then-Lieutenant John Bizak to catch up with the department on any information they may have. Bizak wrote back saying, It should be pointed out that none of the past inquiries have materialized into leads that have been substantiated. Case materials from this 1961 homicide lack sufficient documentation to determine whether some information was ever fully known or pursued during the 1961-63 investigation. While this case may be classified as cleared by arrest under UCR, Uniform Crime Report standards, whether the murder is resolved is another question. Arnold was 49 years old when he passed away on June 18, 1980. He was still residing in Lexington at the time of his death. Whatever other secrets he had died with him. In 1962, the detectives even hired a psychic, Peter Herkos, who stated, the reason the killing happened was because there was a discussion about making love and then a fight started. After the victim couldn't breathe anymore, the murderer was scared and ran off. Take this one with a grain of salt. It looked like, from the case file, at least a couple detectives from each decade picked it up. Rob Wilson here says that Betty Gill's case file was a four-volume stack, including hundreds of documents. Those guys worked hard. This is what commanded the attention of the town, like the O.J. Simpson trial, because it just consumed the town for so long. If there is new information, we're going to go check it out. According to Wilson, there was a handprint extracted from the scene of the crime. There was police documentation of this, and apparently the file just fell out on the floor one day. They gave FBI this print in 2006. They are looking into other suspects currently, according to Lieutenant James Curlis of the FBI. We've looked for DNA. There is none. There are two serial killers that passed through in and around Lexington at that time period. In April of 2011, 67-year-old Nolan Ray George was arrested and charged for the first-degree murder of a Michigan woman in 1968. In Hamilton, Ohio, he killed 36-year-old Gwendolyn Perry by strangling her with her undergarments. Sound familiar? Based on the prosecution's remarks, he supposedly liked to watch his victims die. George was said to have had a Ted Bundy-like charm. He was also arrested for killing 22-year-old Francis Brown, but was released in 1982. He served time in Ohio for strangling women and is also a suspect in similar cases. George will serve life in prison without the possibility of parole. Betty Gail Brown's case will be 60 years old this year, with no solid arrests, and no conclusion. At the University of Kentucky Law School, Robert Lawson has been a professor for 50 years. He teaches on the murder and even wrote a book, Who Killed Betty Gail Brown? He collected the police reports, court records, newspaper clippings, and tossed in some of his own theories and opinions on the case. Lawson himself is unsure if Arnold committed the crime, 
Police contacted him in 2011 asking if he thought Nolan Ray George could have done this. He said, absolutely not. Always a possibility, but he didn't believe so. Also, notably in Lawson's book, rumors apparently went around that Quincy, Betty Gill's mother, was the one who committed the crime. This theory is wild and had no solid evidence. Even though her prints were found in the car, it's possible they were there solely because it was her daughter's car. Lawson writes in his book, no one, no relative, no friend, no acquaintance, no investigator, no lawyer, and no witness has ever provided anything resembling evidence of a motive for the killing of this young woman. And this, above all else, accounts for the fact that the question of who killed Betty Gail Brown has now been a baffling mystery for more than 50 years and is almost sure to remain that way forever. You've got her strangled in her car. Could it have been done by a stranger? Yes, it could. Could it have been done by someone known to her? Yes, it could. The Lexington Police Department's cold case unit works to investigate serious crimes that remain unsolved. Many of the cases are homicides, but all leave victims without justice. Sometimes decades have passed since the crime was committed. Anyone with information about any of the cases is encouraged to contact the Lexington Police Department at 859-258-3700. I'm not sure I have a solid theory on this case. As much as I want to believe that the serial killer who ran through that area at the time was responsible, it just seems too perfect. I really wanted to know more information about the other woman in the car. What if this other woman was the one responsible? We may never know. What do you think happened to Betty Gail Brown? If you would like to join a discussion, please join the Discord. You can find it on my website, casecrazepodcast.com. And please stay safe out there. I don't want to learn about you on the news. Mm.